0: I'll be reading from Hebrews 10, to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Thank you for reading, Eli. I hope you keep your Bibles open to Hebrews 10. We're going to be walking through that passage today. You know, some of the most gripping stories, some of the most gripping movies that I've seen have some of the main characters, some of the most important characters, that are they give their life in sacrifice for others. So those storylines are just very, very compelling. It can even be a totally fiction animated movie like Big Hero 6, or it could be more in the fantasy, kind of superhero genre like Endgame. Or it can be more historical, at least a a recreation of something, maybe even a historical fiction like Saving Private Ryan. Or it could be something that recreates the events of 9/11 or Flight 93. And those those movies, those stories, they grip us. They tell a story of someone sacrificing for the well-being of others. And most people can appreciate how powerful and how beautiful those kinds of stories are when someone gives themselves for others. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate it. But I will say, it sure helps. It sure helps to be a Christian to appreciate it because, because that is the story of the Bible. That is the story that the Bible is telling us. A story where someone laid down their life for the benefit of others. It's the story of Jesus giving his life for sinners. And it's the story, it's the major, major theme of Hebrews. It's the story of the sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews has been laying out threads and really for the last several weeks we've looked at separate threads. And I I wanna do my best to try to pull those threads together from Hebrews seven to Hebrews 10. We talked about last week, I really said it in the context of nouns, just at least a framework for us to appreciate, kind of the idea of person, place, thing, an idea, the context of nouns, and I do feel like Hebrews is walking us through those kinds of things when we, when we recognize that Jesus is the better priest, he's the better person, he's the, he's the one that mediates our relationship with God, Jesus has brought a better covenant, a new covenant It's the better idea. It's the binding promises that God has made for us, made to us. And Jesus gives us access. We kind of talk about place. Jesus has given us access to the tabernacle, not just the one made, like a tent made on earth, made with hands, but actually Hebrews tells us there is, that's just the symbol for access with God in the true tabernacle, in the heavens. But now we're going to turn our attention to the thing, and I don't mean to be disrespectful by calling it a thing, but I, I want us to see the sacrifice, the offering of Jesus. So for our time together, I want us to focus on the cross, which we do regularly, which you probably most in the room would not be unfamiliar with the story of the cross. And, and yet I, I am going to say I think it's easy to admire it Admire this sacrifice and not fully internalize what the implications of that sacrifice means. Even if you know the story of the cross so well that you could tell it, not missing any detail. I wonder if we have internalized, I wonder how long it's been since we really understood, okay, what was going on? It's a beautiful picture of love, but what does it mean? What does it mean for me? You could even get emotionally moved by the cross, much like I can get emotionally moved by a a fictional story. I wanted to go another level deeper. Actually, my prayer, what I believe, no, we're not going to master the subject. No, we're not going to exhaust the subject, but I I would love for us to, actually, God, to do such a work by looking at the cross, focusing our attention on the sacrifice of Jesus. God, to do a work, actually, what I prayed for is that God would do a work on the spot, God would change our hearts, do something for all of us on the spot today as we hear God's word. So I do want to go back to those verses that Eli read. And really, let's begin to understand exactly what they're saying. Verse one. Verse one says this For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Well, then the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, the law can never make perfect those who draw near. It actually gives us a picture of a couple different eras. The era of the law. And the era of the law is pre-Jesus. So it's the first part of the Bible where you read. And what it says about those is that actually the law, the instruction, the first few books of the Bible are a shadow of the good things to come. And so what it says is, in the era of the law or the instruction, you think of some of the first books of the Bible, that is a shadow pointing, to, it's not the true form. We might even say it's not the real thing, but it's giving us a glance toward it. The sacrifices, why, why wasn't it, why was it just the shadow? Why could it never make someone perfect? The sacrifices that were authorized I mean, we hear a shadow, we realize the sacrifices that were authorized, the sacrifices that were being made. It's talking about animal sacrifices, like grain and harvest offerings. It says they never made someone perfect. They were just a shadow. Making perfect, it definitely has like a moral, like morally perfect, but it means more than that. It's not just morally perfect. When you read that it never made someone perfect, you can also understand it to mean like it never like completely brought someone to fulfillment. It never was perfect. It never made someone fully, like fully living the realities of what they were designed to be, what God originally created people to be. Never brought them fully there. Never fully forgiven. Never fully reconciled with God. Never fully free, never fully clean, never fully alive, never fully worshiping. The animal sacrifices were unable to make someone perfect. In other words, they they didn't get it across the finish line in all these different areas. They didn't help those who would draw near to God. And that word draw near doesn't just mean like geographical, physical proximity. It's talking about drawing near to God, like to his throne, approaching the very presence of God. And for all that the animal sacrifices would do, symbolizing forgiveness of sin, it never brought a worshiper like completely into God's presence with like no sense of, of uncleanness or defilement. How can the people who come to God be perfect by the law? They can't. And they won't. Just to reinforce things a little further, there's a hypothetical in verse 2. It's like they they can't be made perfect. Otherwise, look at verse 2. Would they, meaning the sacrifices, would those sacrifices, like if if those could get the job done, would they not have just ceased to be offered? Because if they did get the job done, the, the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. This is making us kind of think through logically what, what life was like pre-Jesus. And the thought was, you know, if one of those sacrifices, if it was just right on one day, and a priest goes in and offers it, well, then the right bull, the right goat, the right bird, the right harvest offering, whatever, if it, was, if it were enough, then there never would have been another one. We would have been in the clear. You wouldn't have to wake up next Tuesday and go, I guess we got to do it again. And the one after that, and the one after that, and the one after that. The facts are the animal sacrifices, they don't clean you on the inside. We still would sacrifice an animal and still feel defiled from our sin. You sacrifice the animal on Tuesday, you have an impure thought on Wednesday, what do you do? You have a selfish thought, you act immaterialism, you don't love your neighbor, you're prideful, and you know it's not right. And the sacrifice didn't change those things. The animal sacrifices, the grain, the harvest offerings, they don't clear the conscience. You still feel guilty. You still feel heavy. At times you would still, you feel like your sin is going to chase you down one day. And you're going to be exposed to for the spiritual fraud you are, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it. So that the animal sacrifices only go so far. They're important, but instead of leaving you clean and relieved, actually, it's the opposite. And Notice in verse 3, it says, in these sacrifices, there's actually a reminder of sin, a, a, hardwired, a hardwired reminder of sins every year. So every year kind of tells us, points us to a day of atonement when there was this offering once, once a year. And not the, the holiday is like an annual reminder. I mean, some holidays look like how free we are now because of this holiday. Because of July 4th, we have independence. But this one says, no, it's not just something in the past that made everything so much better. Actually, it's something you've got to do now, this year, and you'll have to do it next year. And the year after that, it's like sin is in the present. And this is a reminder. You have to think about it. You can't forget it which actually isn't a bad thing. So it's kind of like a monitor going off is not necessarily a bad thing. Especially if the monitor is telling you you are in an unsafe position, you better, the, the conditions are unsafe or something's going on in your body, it's, it's not all right. So actually those monitors, the worst thing you would do is disable the monitor. No, you want that, if it's calibrated right, you want it going off just like the reminder every year saying you're a sinner. What are we going to do about sin? How is that going to be remedied? And then we have verse 4 reminding us that without Christ it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to cause the sin, cause the guilt to disappear, to take it away. No amount of sacrifice you or I could come up with. I and mean, we could have a nice brainstorming session. What do you think we could do? What do you think we could, what do you think we could offer? What do you think we should do? We do that all day long. Think about all the things we could offer God and the guilt doesn't go away and the sin isn't taken away. This, is, this would be the perpetual state of humans. And That's the canvas and it's an honest one. It definitely resonates with like my conscience that Am I okay? And when I'm not, what do I do? What how how do I fix that? But still, I mean, for as much as we know and we teach and we understand that when God created human beings, He said we are very good, it also after sin we recognize a permanent feature is going to be us recognizing. I mean, the, the best person in here, all of us recognizing. I'm not okay. I do things that are wrong, that harm others. And because of that, verse 1 would say you're left imperfect, incomplete. Verse 2 would remind you that you're left unclean. Verse, three would, verse 2 would also remind you you have a, like you're conscious of sin. Verse 3 and 4 just kind of give, us, give me the idea of like sin just keeps sticking it to us. It's a reminder, yeah, you're not okay. Yeah, you're not okay. Yeah, you're not okay. Yet there's so much more I want you to see in this chapter than that canvas, which isn't a pretty one. I want you to see in verse 5. So in light of all that, I love the word like consequently. We've got a better story to tell than that one because that's not a good one for us. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, just kind of mark that phrase, we'll come back to it. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body, have you prepared for me? Burn offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. But then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. There's lots of quotation marks going on and I just want kind of you to notice. So we're, we're going to talk through who is saying what in these passages. But, but all of those quotations, all of those verses are driving at a point, driving at a point of Hebrews 10. And that is that Jesus did whatever was necessary. Here's a major point of Hebrews 10, that Jesus did whatever was necessary to permanently bring you to God. Again, we'll follow the quotations, but don't miss this. Jesus did whatever was necessary to permanently bring you to God. Which should make us just step back and go, how much must God love you? If Jesus voluntarily, willingly came for you and came for me to deal with our sin, how much must God love you? How much must Jesus, the Son of God, love you? In verse 5, it says, this is one way he expressed that love. He came into the world, which is an interesting way of saying it. I think it's just another reminder that Jesus that Christ existed before he took on human form. But there was a time where, although he had existed in eternity past, there was a time when he came in human form, when he came into the world. We celebrate that at Christmas. But verse 5 and 6 give you a contrast, don't they? They tell you what God doesn't desire. Ultimately, and actually what he does take pleasure in. Do you see what he doesn't desire? And it's a quote. It's actually in verse 5 and 6. It's a quote from Psalm 40. And it's saying, you know, when, all, when animals are completely burned on the altar, when sacrifices are completely burned on the altar to take away sins, it's not as if God is ultimately pleased by that. Just a reminder here. What what God says does make him pleased, what he does desire, is actually in those words there in verse 5 and 6. It's not the sacrifices, but a body you have prepared for me. It says when Christ came into the world, he said, that's a quote from Psalm 40, but it's taking that quote that was written a thousand years before Jesus, putting it on his lips, saying, it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats. But you gave, you gave me a body, a body you've prepared for me, a body. Jesus would live as a human. He would suffer as a human. He would enjoy things as a human. He would grow and he would pray and he would trust and he would depend on God as a human in a human body. And then he would take that human body and offer it to God as a sacrifice, his life on the cross, as a sacrifice for us. That is what God wanted a human body. Jesus, the Son of God, living out the perfect will of the Father. Verse 7, I mean, we get more words of Jesus on his mouth. I mean, taking a quote from Psalm 40 and putting it on Jesus' Jesus's lips, behold, Jesus would say, I've come to do your will. I mean, it's poetic and it's powerful. I mean, behold, I've come to do your will, O God. I'm here to do what you want me to do. Do you ever wonder why in the Lord's Prayer, or what we call the model prayer, that one of the requests is, your will be done? Where did Jesus get that? This was what Jesus lived and breathed. This is Jesus' DNA. I want to do your will, not my will. Animal sacrifices, one way it's been said, and I think it's a helpful, just kind of pulling all this together, animal sacrifices cannot deal with sin. One reason, because the animals have no choice about whether or not they will be offered as a sacrifice. Jesus, on the other hand, offered himself by his own choice in response to his father's will. I'm going to hear it again in verse 8 when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. But he came to offer something very different than a goat, a bull, a bird. Behold, I have come to do your will. And the first order of all those animal sacrifices are put away in order to establish the second the old sacrifices no longer have any power no no longer able to accomplish anything but Jesus in verse 10 by doing God's will these these words we could just run through them but if we just take a few moments and at least walk slowly by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctified, that may be like a church word, a Bible word that you don't use regularly. The word sanctified, it just mean it doesn't mean like set apart, make holy, but holy in the sense of like set apart for a purpose of worship. Set apart, made clean so that you could really meet with God. So that you could really be in his presence so that you really could be freed from all guilt, fit to enter his presence. So he offers his body, the body of Jesus, putting an end to the old sacrifices. Like the old sacrifices were here, he takes those away and puts his own life, his own body, his own death in its place. Once for all, he offers himself, and by this we are freed from all guilt. If earlier I said we were imperfect, incomplete, unclean, constantly conscious of sin, sin constantly sticking it to us. Now things change for the one who trusts in Jesus. And they change permanently. Things change permanently, definitively. It says in verse 11, just so we know that it really is this permanent. Verse 11 gives us a contrast again. There's the priest, and now the priest isn't just going in annually to the tent, but the priest is standing daily. And he's offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. You see daily and repeatedly the same sacrifices. And the net result is still the the sins aren't taken away. The priest is standing and he's moving and he's constantly working. And there's this sacrifice and this offering and this sacrifice. and, And the sin still is not taken away. But what a contrast in verse 12. But when Christ had offered just these words for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Instead of being up, moving around, he sits down with, which in the context here is like a position of rest. The work is done. He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. It's Psalm 110 language. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus offers the single sacrifice, and it's enough. He sits down because the work is done. There's coming a day of complete judgment, but for those that are in Christ, we're resting in him. There's something so hopeful about that. I hear like perfected, being made perfect for all time, dealing completely with sin, dealing completely with the conscience that is like the, the alarms are going off, dealing completely, making people to be as they should be for all time. Something. There's so settling about that. I remember verses like these when I was a teenager. So if there's one era of life I just would be glad never to repeat, it would be teenage years. And I think I'm probably in company with lots of people because they're hard and they're confusing and they're difficult and they change and. It's hard to even know what you want to do, what you want to be, what matters to you. And just a a very kind of disorienting time of life. But in reading these verses, I was brought back. I don't know if it was like late middle school or early high school. And just what the Lord did in my life, settling me with some of these, like, it's been offered, the sacrifice has been offered, and it's permanent. It's once for all. The work has started in your life, Curtis. And it's going to continue. And Christ has done what needs to be done. For me and those close to me know how much I love music. And so songs that like talk about Jesus doing whatever was necessary to permanently bring me to God. Like those have always resonated with me. Those have always just like stuck with me. I remember a song. And I don't know that it was actually really nationally known, but I remember and something about going over this this week brought me back to a place and and maybe you know like songs that do that for you that take you back to a place and like help settle your heart and I probably hadn't thought of the song in a decade, but I went back to it and I'm positive many of you will have never heard it. But it describes Jesus and I just I have to read it because it's like when I read these verses of like okay, he's offered once for all time. It's done. So it gives us a picture of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and standing trial. It says, we took our hope to a courtyard, and we stripped him of his clothes, and we gambled on his garments with his head hung low, and we scorned him, and we mocked him, and we said, why not save yourself? If you're really who you say you are, this will be no contest. While struggling to carry that man-made torture rack, we shouted, crucify him, with the whole world's sin upon his back. And with a crown of thorns upon his head, above him was his name, a soldier spat in his precious face and said, now Jesus, where is your fame? But one day, we will bow before him and worship this king, and we won't drive nails in his hands or in his feet. And we'll proclaim that in the highest, he's the Lord of everything. And we will never crucify him again. The bridge says this, from the north, the south, the east, the west, all nations will gather in. And God will trade this bloodstained rugged cross for a royal diadem. We will bow before him and worship our king. We won't drive nails in his hands or his feet. We'll proclaim that in the highest he's the Lord of everything. And we will never crucify him again. There's something just definitive and settling about that. Settling to me when I was a teenager. Settling to me right now. That what Jesus has done is done. The price has been paid. So I... I kind of want to lean in and just ask you a question. Like, what more do you need Jesus to do? If you're not trusting him right now, what more does he have to prove that he is for you? If you're saying, like, I don't know that I can take that step of faith and trust Jesus with my life yet. I don't think I'm there yet. I would have to ask you, like, what more? What other way does he need to show he loves you? What has he not demonstrated that you go, well, if I see this in April, I might start believing. And maybe in May. Maybe he needs to show me a couple more things. I think you could think for a long, long time, and you'll never come up with one more definitive thing he needs to do. He's shown you in the cross exactly how much he loves you. And you could even look at that and wonder how personal it is. And I love the way, actually, this section of scripture finishes because... Well, look at verse verse 15, because if it wasn't enough to say that Jesus did whatever was necessary to permanently bring us to God, then verse 15 says, added to that, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us, like making it personal to us, bears witness. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He also adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Look at that. Look at what the Holy Spirit says. Look at what the Holy Spirit bears witness to. So yes, Jesus did what was, whatever was necessary to bring us to God. But also notice that the Holy Spirit consistently communicates to you what the new covenant means to God. Do you see that? Do you see that in verse 15, verse 16, verse 17? The Holy Spirit consistently communicates, bears witness to you, tells you you need to know what the new covenant means to God. The Holy Spirit's going to make that clear. How much must God love you? That the Holy Spirit, how much must God love me? That the Holy Spirit is ready to communicate this new covenant again and again and again. Words all the way back from Jeremiah, repeated, reminded again and again. You need to know what the New Covenant means to God? the Holy Spirit's ready to communicate that to you. Do, you. do you need to know that God's serious about keeping His promises? The Holy Spirit's ready, even in this room this morning, to bear witness to you that that new covenant, the new covenant where, yes, you and I have that guilty, that guilty conscience problem. We can't get our conscience clean. We actually need to be rewired. Like it would be great to be rewired in our head and in our heart, and that's exactly what the new covenant does. I will put my laws, my instruction in your heart. I'll write those in your heart and in your mind. You're going to be rewired, leading you in the new creation to where, think about it, one day we're always going to do the will of our Father. We're always going to do it. We're always going to do it perfectly. However time works, we're going to wake up the next day, wake up the next day, wake up the next day. However it works, we're always going to do the will of our Father because that's going to be written, hardwired in us. And that's actually the process that got us started in clearing our conscience now. Yes, you and I have not only a guilty conscience problem, but a guilty record problem. There are lawless deeds, there's rebellion, there's sin that we've done. And we're reminded of it regularly. I was reminded of it this morning, of a week, a track record of a week that wasn't, Like, didn't sin one time. That said no one ever. Like, that's not our week. We have this guilty record problem. And then I read words like, I will remember their sins. No more. Their lawless deeds, I'm not going to bring them to mind to act on those in judgment anymore. It's done. A new covenant does something about it. Which certainly doesn't mean we coast." doesn't mean we spiritually coast no it actually means we live we live and we love and we serve and we worship and we love our neighbors and we do do our jobs for God's glory and we discipline ourselves and we sacrifice and we grow and we change and we pray but it's in the context not of like flimsy things but permanent things God's new covenant which means we have true freedom and we have permanent security We have a real relationship. We have life giving purpose. And I love how 18 just puts the exclamation point on it, saying it this way where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer a need for offering. In other words, in a situation where the sins have been forgiven, there's no more sacrifice needed to take them away. Nothing more has to be done. So, can I ask you again? what more do you need from Jesus? What more do you need from the Holy Spirit? than bearing witness that you have been brought into a new covenant, a new binding arrangement with a holy God through what Jesus did. And there's this beautiful scene in the Bible. Lots of people are coming to Jesus. Again, it seemed like crowds just always were around Jesus. And what I love about it is it, it describes Jesus seeing the crowd, and I don't think it was just like a number. I think he saw the individuals and knew what was going on in their lives. And it describes it this way. Matthew describes him seeing the crowd and says he saw people that were harassed and helpless. So I think it would not be unlike Jesus looking at this crowd and going, There are people in this room that have been harassed, beat down, beat up. It shouldn't have happened and it has and it has happened repeatedly. And he would look at people that are helpless, and if you feel insulted by that, we are helpless to affect our will and change everything in our world. You want to change your family, but sometimes you can't. You want to change this thing about you, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. And you actually, for all the independence you want to feel, you actually feel helpless at running the world. You feel helpless at managing even some of the details of your life. And Jesus would look at you if you say, that's me, and he would look at you harassed and helpless. And it doesn't say Jesus was moved with irritation and disgust at people that couldn't get their lives together, but it says he was moved with compassion. He saw those who were sheep without a shepherd. And just amazing imagery. Not only is he the shepherd, but he's also going to be the pure lamb of God that sacrifices himself. And at the end of your independent, get in there and knock it out streak, where you feel actually more helpless than you were to start. Jesus moved with compassion, moves towards you. He says, my sacrifice for you is once for all. Nothing needs to be added. How much, how much must God love us? How much must the Son of God, Jesus Christ, love us? Like I said, that kind of love doesn't just give us a couple things to think about. It changes us, and it can change you here today. If you've yet to trust in Christ, we'd love to have that conversation with you, but I, I do want to pray for all of us that we lean into that, not run from it. Okay, can I pray for us? Father, these words are way beyond anything we could have hoped or imagined, so thank you for spelling it out clearly. Thank you for your Holy Spirit bearing witness to us. In case we forget, in case we're unsure, in case we're doubting, you underline, I will remember their lawless deeds, their sins, no more. So thank you. And yet for the person that's wondering, is it too good to be true? How could, how could the creator of the world, how could he be so loving to us? In their question marks and uncertainty, I pray what would fill that gap? would be faith today, would be a confidence that it's true. Not too good to be true, it's true. And so, Lord, change us all. I pray that we'd be that kind of community who know that all we have, all we have, is not our best deeds. All we have is Christ. I pray that would be the song of our heart, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.